I'm not mad. I'm just irritated. Well, hey, everybody. What did you think of my new intro music? Not bad, huh? Courtesy of my friend, pal, buddy, Joe Freund. Put that together for me. Put my voice in there. I'd also like for you to stick around long enough to check out my outro music. Much soothing. Guys, uh, today we have a special guest, uh, author and filmmaker, John Bernardo. He's going to talk about uh, a $2 bill documentary movie that he made that I wrote about several years back, which personally I found super fascinating because I'm a kind of a currency geek. He's also going to tell you a little bit about a new book project that he has. The book is called Just a Typo and it will be dropping soon on Amazon if you all care to check that out. And let's get John on the phone. John Bernardo, welcome to the program. Hello. John, welcome to the program. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, my pleasure. Um, before we get uh, knee deep in our conversation, I want to give a, a quick shout out to the Finline Festival. That's where we met when you screened your movie. And for those of you that don't know, the, screen, uh, the Finline Festival is a music and film and art festival up in my hometown of Denton, Texas. And the amazing thing about this festival, especially from my point of view, living in the Austin area, where there's festivals every week, it seems, uh, at least pre-COVID, the Thin Line Festival is an absolutely free festival to attend. You can go to the music venues. You can go to the screenings. All you have to do is register. They make their money through sponsorships, and it's, a, it's a totally free to the community, which sounds crazy from my point of view, being down here in Austin for so long, but that's pretty rare, I would imagine. So shout out to Thin Line Festival. I think they had to um, cancel last April's festival, but hopefully they'll be able to have another one here soon. So at that festival, you screened your movie, The $2 Bill documentary, which I found fascinating. And I want to talk a little bit about that process um, and how you got the idea, and then just how you got it out there in the world, because it's a pretty interesting story. Yeah, good question. Um, I got to think back to when I thought of the idea. I can tell you that I've had a fascination with $2 bills since I was a kid. And just like everybody else, when I got one, I thought it was something special. I thought it was going to be worth a lot of money. You know, I better hold on to this. And so I stuffed it in a drawer. And I think over my 40 plus years before I made the movie, I accumulated 11 of them. And I had been, I'm a filmmaker. I've always loved making films. I've done a few documentary shorts and I was looking for something else to do. And one day I pulled those 11 bills out of my drawer and said, geez, you know, this is, I don't know what I'm going to ever do with these things. I should do maybe a little short on these things. Um, you know, and I just figured it'd be like some 30 minute goofy thing where I went into 7-Eleven and spent them. And so I said, you know, maybe I'll do a documentary on these. And I started looking into it a little bit and there was a numismatics festival coincidentally a week later in Orlando. So I drove up there and got some information and I started learning more about the $2 bill and um, just accumulating footage. And it just kind of blew up. Um, I was fortunate to find somebody in New York who um, collected them and used them all the time. And uh, I, I read an article on it 
on Google that I found because I was set up for Google alerts. And long story short, the guy flew to New York and I interviewed him and then he opened me up to some other people. And then I was written about in the New York Times as a little side thing. There happened to be an article. The guy was writing about $2 bills. So all these kind of magical little things happened in my favor and it brought more people. First of all, it brought me to more people, but also brought more people to me because New York Times is syndicated. So somebody in San Diego who was around when they were redoing the bill says, hey, you know, he called me and, you know, I was the guy that was involved when the two dollar bill was brought back in 1976. So it just exploded into all these great topics and right people. And they were wonderful people. I mean, I flew around the country and did all these interviews and the thing just took off from there. Well, you brought up a good point. I've um, I've always been a documentary fan. And I watch them all the time. I, I sometimes pull my wife in to watch uh, the 30 for 30s, which were very accessible on ESPN. And mm-hmm. we started talking about them. It's like it's never really about the content as much as it is the people. And you mentioned the people. And usually for a great documentary, which is fact laden, you need the connection of the people, which I thought was excellent in your film. Yeah, and you said a key word there. You said the word connection. And I think when you boil it down to its roots, the film isn't really about the $2 bill, um, but it is about the way the $2 bill connects people. Because there's countless stories, as you recall, of the way the $2 bill brings people together. Um, There's that husband and wife with the 9-11 scenario where she lost her husband in 9-11, and it was the $2 bill in his wallet that helped reconnect them when they found his Mm -hmm. wallet. Um, There are families that... Um, and pass them down through generations. There's a, a connection with strangers when you use one in a store and the cashier sees one, it, they light up and they start a conversation with you. So the movie, when I started realizing what the movie was really about, and I found its uh, emotional center, if I can say that, it was about connection. And I think that's hopefully what you saw in it when, when you saw the movie, was that it wasn't just all these anecdotes and facts about this piece of currency, but the way that piece of currency brings people together and forges a connection. Yes, definitely. That was one of my big takeaways from that film. Another part of that film that I really liked, and I'd like for you to talk a little bit about this, is when you got to go into the U.S. Mint, I believe it was in Fort Worth, Mm -hmm. where they print the $2 bill. And I can't imagine how cool that must have been, Um, even if you're not a a money guy or a collector, um, just to see that process and how that all worked and was it easy for you to film that section in the U.S. Mint there? Yeah, that was another scenario where, like I mentioned earlier, there was some magic involved because just the timing of doing the film and, and discovering people who could help me. I happened to call the Treasury Department just on a whim to see if I could get somebody who could speak about it. You know, is there any money official I can talk to on camera who would give the film a little bit of authority? And, uh, you know, they gave me a little bit of the, not the runaround, but they passed me off to this person and this person. And then finally somebody got on the phone from Fort Worth and said, well, you know, we're filming. I mean, we're uh, making more $2 bills. We're printing them in October. And this was right around early September. And she goes, would you like you can come out and film that? <laughs> I was like, that's amazing. Crazy? Like just out of nowhere. Like I wasn't expecting to get an opportunity to film at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And then they just invited me a month and a half later, uh, which happened to be the day before my birthday. They were printing them. So it was a great gift for me to uh, do what you said to go out there and, and be given basically carte blanche. They put a badge on me and let me walk around. They, they stay with me, of course. And, you know, here's the machine that does this. And I filmed it. And here's the machine that does that. And I filmed it. And 
here's all these $2 bills before the serial numbers are added. And I got to film that and just a fantastic, memorable day of going around. And, and they had never had anybody who was interested in the $2 bill before. So I was really the first person who was given permission to shoot them. And I think that was part of the reason they wanted me to do it was because there was a chance for someone to make a film about this rare piece of currency, not rare, but this little known. Yes. Yeah, it's not rare, but in some people's minds, it's rare, but they were like, you know, here's the guy doing a movie about the $2 bill. Uh, this <laughs> and great for the, you know, yeah, that's current, a... yeah, family in general. Right. So they let me come out and they just gave me carte blanche and it was a, a truly memorable day. Yeah. That's amazing timing. You mentioned that the $2 bill is not rare. You can go into most banks and they'll have some in the drawer that you can get. Um, but there are times when a $2 bill and any uh, denomination of currency can be worth some money. And that's when they have like weird, unusual, special serial numbers. And you mentioned that, that they were putting the serial numbers on the $2 bills at the mint when you went. And I'm the kind of guy, and there's very few of us out here that check serial numbers on all his bills. <laughs> Yeah, you told and me that. always That's good yeah, for you. I always have. And and you talk about this in your film. You talk about, you know, low um low serial numbers, you talk about radar notes, you talk about repeaters. And for people that don't know, I I just encourage them for instead of us explaining all those things to to watch the the film which is available on YouTube. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But as an example, I have another buddy of mine who's like that and and I got a, I went to Mighty Fine, this was probably a year or two ago, and got a hamburger here in the Austin area. And as, as she was counting out my change, I paid, paid with cash, <clears throat> excuse me, as she was counting out the money into my hand, one of the $1 bills, as soon as she put it out there, stuck out as if it were on fire. And the reason was the serial number absolutely caught my eye and i remember the serial number the serial number was zero one zero 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 one and it just exploded off of the bill at me and i looked at it and i'm going i've never really obviously if that first one hadn't been there it would have been the first one in the series all zeros but a one but i knew it was you know a binary i knew it was kind of a special note and so i i texted a picture of of uh, the serial note of the, of the bill to my buddy. And I said, look what I got today. And we'll often exchange texts like, should we keep it? Should we spend it? Look at this serial number. We kind of have rules on how we do it. And um, he texted me back. I want it. <laughs> and I go, okay. Um, he goes, and then we play this little game. He's I'll give you a dollar for it. I said, yeah, I'm going to put it on eBay. Someone will probably give me a hundred bucks for it. He goes, fine. I'll give you 20 bucks for it. I said, okay. Because I didn't really care. It wasn't in crisp, perfect condition. It was an okay condition. And I didn't want to have the hassle with it. And he wanted it. So it's like, fine, I made $19 today. And I was perfectly happy. But uh, that is just an example of me just being a little OCD about checking all those things. Because you just never know when you might strike gold in one of those with one of those serial numbers. So I, I really enjoyed that part of the film. Uh, in particular, because it, I was your I was your audience there. So you, you get your your film made. Then where does it go from there? Well, it took me two years uh, to get it done. It took me a year to fly around the country and collect everything. And the interesting thing about that is I up until I discovered that the connection thing I talked about earlier was the center of the film. 
I really didn't have a plan. Most of the time you make a film and you kind of outline it and you do all the research and you plan what the film is. And then you go out and you record what you need to tell that story. Well, I didn't know what the story was. I just started collecting things like going to the numismatic convention I mentioned earlier and going to see the guy who was, uh, who was involved when they reissued it. I just collected all these stories. And then the, the biggest challenge, uh, which I knew I was up for, uh, I think it's one of my strengths, was taking all of these basically anecdotal things and finding a way to tell a story around it. Uh, and then I came upon the idea of connection when someone spoke to me about it. And uh, my son was at a young age at the time, and I gave him a bill. and I saw the way he lit up, and it kind of bonded us. So I kind of found the story, and then I spent really a year editing it. So it was a two-year process to shoot it and edit it. But when I finally had it done, to answer your question, uh, the first thing you do is you try to get it into film festivals. Uh, I had a lot of people that were interested in seeing the film because I raised money on Kickstarter. I crowdsourced it or crowdfunded it. And um, so I had a lot of people waiting for the release of the film. And as I submitted it all over the country, you know, I would make those announcements on Facebook or what have you. And it got into um, – you know, there were some disappointments, some film festivals that did not get into, and then other ones like The Thin Line, which you know was a great festival, as you said, that accepted it. So you know, it's kind of a crapshoot. You you don't know who's looking for what, but you set you get it out there, and you you know you hope for as many acceptances as you can. And I got uh, maybe ten or so, and I got to play all over the country. So I flew to to Texas for that one, and I met you there, and I flew to San Francisco, and I was in New York and Los Angeles, and a couple down here in South Florida. So it's really just a matter of um, getting it into film festivals, uh, which it did. And that builds its audience and builds its following. And, and, and then the YouTube thing, if I can go there, I had the sure. trailer for the movie up on YouTube. It's a way to show it around just as a, a hosting place so I could you know, show the trailer. And um, I happened to put one clip from the movie on there. I don't remember why I did that. But six, seven months later, it had half a million views <laughs> because – that's amazing. Yeah, because it answered the question, you know, is my $2 bill worth money? Uh, and people Google that. And Google eventually found that video and started suggesting it. So people were Googling, you know, questions about their $2 bill, finding my video. I said, hey, I got to put some more some more stuff up here. Uh, and I have so much footage I didn't use in the film. I and mean, I could have had a film that was an hour longer. And I obviously didn't do that. So I started putting all this other content up on YouTube. I created new pieces of deleted scenes. And now I have a flourishing YouTube channel uh, with almost uh, 20,000 subscribers. I've got uh, a couple of views with 3 million, a couple of videos with 3 million views, and it's taken off. That's excellent. So the film kind of yeah, I, on. I am one of your subscribers, and I thoroughly enjoy the clips that you put up there. And like you said, some of them I recognized from the movie, but some of them that was new content. So that was excellent. And so you you have now basically a two dollar bill documentary brand Correct. that you Correct. that you have kind of fallen into. I don't know if it was it was by design at first, but certainly it, it became something of sorts. And then after several years, we talked about this. You just released the whole um, film on on YouTube. It so was anybody that's listening, yes. So anybody that was that's listening to this today can go and watch the whole movie um, on their YouTube, on, on their phones or on the computer. And I highly recommend that they do so. So it, it's interesting. You know, you, you started with film festivals. You sold DVDs. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Uh, I, I have one of those. Um, you you built up uh, interest on your YouTube channel. And then at some point, it's like, OK, here you go. I've kind of 
it's kind of like a, a um, you know any other movie. It starts out in a theater. Eventually, you're streaming it, um, and eventually, it's on free network television. So there's a there's a whole process, right? Of the way that we works, don't have so. it on network television yet, but uh, <laughs> that would be a great thing. Um, I put it on YouTube. It had been five years, and uh, COVID obviously hit us, and people were home, and I said. I don't know how many people are going on, uh, you know, going to want to spend nine ninety nine for a DVD or even five ninety nine for a DVD because I lowered the price. Um, it's mm-hmm. still on Amazon. If you want to pay two dollars to watch it, you can go on Amazon and watch it there. And some people still do; they don't realize it's on YouTube. Right. But I put it there so that people could um, access it. And look, I'll be honest with you: YouTube is a it's a revenue generating thing. There are ads on my videos, and I've been able to do pretty well. Just you know, again, something I didn't expect to happen. To put a couple of videos up. And people go on there and there's ads on them and it's generating revenue. So I said, you know what? Put the film on there. Probably generate a little more revenue with advertisements because I think they put them every 15 minutes or something. Um, right. And so, yeah, so it's just, again, it's it's a nice little passive income stream for me. And the fact that I can make new videos is a great creative outlet. And a lot of people that are that surprisingly large number of people that follow the bill and love the bill and, and wait for me to put new content out. And are there for my premieres. And so it's been a great, uh, great way to talk to all the people that love the bill. Great way to foster community, uh, make a few bucks on the side and just get my material out there and know that what I'm creating has an audience. Well, it's always nice to create something that people enjoy. And congratulations on all of that. Um, it's well deserved. And you're, you're on to another project now. Um, you're besides a filmmaker, you're a writer and author and you were trained as a writer. Tell me a little bit about your background before we get into your current project that you're, that you're working on. Actually, you're pretty much finished fixing to drop this Um, as a writer. Tell me about that. Yeah, I was always a writer first as a child. He's one of those kids that when he was bored, just pulled out a piece of loose leaf paper and a pencil and started writing a story Um, poems. I loved rhymes and that was just my creative outlet as a kid and as I went into high school, I was a sports fan. I wrote for my local paper covering sports. That was an opportunity to write about something I loved, sports. And I started doing the same thing in college. But I always loved movies. I grew up on all the old – you probably remember these, Bill, all the old Disney movies with Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. The strongest absolutely. man in the world and all these silly ones where there's like a, yep. something – Jan Michael Vincent, yeah. world's greatest athlete. <laughs> the shaggy DA. Yeah, I grew up on that stuff. So I loved movies and I loved the uh, slapsticky nature of that stuff. Um, and when I got into college, I took some film courses as an elective and I loved them. And I said, you know, I want to make movies now. I could, they can give me a camera from the equipment room and I can go out and film something. So my writing went more from, you know, short stories and poems to, you know, little films, which I would go out and shoot. And, um, then I ended up going to Hollywood and got my master's as a screenwriter. So my career basically ventured more towards screenwriting and eventually I made the documentary about $2 bills because it was just another film project. But even so, the $2 bill documentary, I mean, I wrote it. I had to write I mean, all these interviews, but I had to write a script for it and write narration. So the writing was still there. Um, I wrote right. that movie. Um, and then just recently, I had an idea for another fake documentary I was going to do. I liked the documentary format. So this idea that I had brewing in my head, I was like, I should make this as a fake documentary and I was going to sit down and write it as a script because I've written a bunch of screenplays and I just didn't want to have to do the. I hate to say it this way, but I didn't want to have to do the work to really work out all the details of the script and outline it. I said, I just want to sit down and get back to my roots and write 
pros and just go. Like, let it take me wherever it takes me. Sit at my desk and start writing. And if I get a goofy idea, just go with it and see where it takes me. And so I started writing a novel, um, which would have been a fake documentary otherwise, a comedic film. Uh, but it turned into a novel, and that's basically where that comes from. I was a writer as a child. I got away from it for a while. I'm reaching an age where I'm trying to find you know, who I am and what I really want to be, and, and the writing is what appealed to me. So I went and wrote a novel. <laughs> there you go. It, that's so you – it's really interesting that you know you and I are we're, – we're not spring chickens. We're not old men, but we're not spring right. chickens right. anymore. And uh, I started – Riding a little bit later in life, I was a public school teacher. I taught English for about the last 13 or 14 years of my career. I was a science teacher. <laughs> I taught English in high school for um, three years. There you go. So um, when I finally had the time after, you know, when you're in public school or, you know, when you're married and you have children, I mean, there's just, you're so busy. The thought about doing something that just because you wanted to do, it just seemed ludicrous to me. But you know, later on, I did have the time. My kids were grown. I wasn't teaching anymore. And I, I started doing some writing and it's, it's a, a lot of fun. You mentioned a screenplay. I have actually written one. I, I ended up shelving it when I, when I wrote Hollywood, Texas, my novella last year, I thought about writing it as a screenplay first. And I thought, you know, no one's going to see it if I write a screenplay right. and I start submitting it or trying, I'm just going to write this out and, and go from there. And the book is written like maybe a screenplay it's like reading a movie. You could read it in two and a half hours, kind of like watching a movie. So when you get this idea, you just sit down and it's like, you know what, I'm going to do this. So it's kind of, you know, I tell people all the time, it's like, well, you can do this. You could sit down and do this. And you just, once you have an idea that you can mine, then you're off to the races. So you came up with an idea for your latest book. I want you to talk a little bit about that. And you, you, you just mentioned that, you just sat down and started doing it. So yeah, before, before what what brought you to that? Yeah, point? and I want to just echo one of your points: is that ultimately you just have to sit down and do it because, like you said, we're not spring chickens. We're at the age where anything I sit down and do that's going to take some time and commitment. You have to think about well, how can I? You know, I hate to be this way, but how can I monetize this? You know, I'm using time. I have a family. I have to provide for. Right. Um, you know, what am I going to do with this thing? And it's it's you got to get out of that mindset. Would be the advice I'd give to any listener. You just you got to do what makes you happy. And if going to work every day and, and not following a passion or a creative, you know, uh, germ of an idea, if you ignore that, you're, you're not doing yourself any sort of service. So I've kind of learned as I get older, just do it and worry about it later. And if nobody sees it, and you end up putting it in a drawer. So what? It was a creative outlet. You made yourself happy. You enjoy the process. But you can also you can monetize. Yeah, exactly. you can monetize. So even with the two dollar bills of creating YouTube content, that's me being creative. That's me having an outlet. Even if nobody saw it, I just am lucky that I do have an audience for that. And when I put it up on YouTube, I'm going to get you know a couple thousand views right off the bat. So in the case of the book, same thing. I said, you know what? I'm just going to write it. And if it stinks, I'll find out that I can't write anymore and I lost the skill. <laughs> But I believe in what I can do. I know I can write, and, and sure enough, I found myself getting better with every ten pages that hit the, you know, that hit the word processing uh, app. So I just really enjoyed it. I found a story that made me laugh, and I wrote what made me laugh, and got through it, which is an accomplishment in itself. I mean, the fact that I got seventy-five thousand yes. words down—I mean, it was eighty—and then I pared it back, but just an enjoyable process. And when I had nothing to do, I always had something to do. And that's also a good thing. You know, instead of watching TV, I'm sitting and writing and being creative. Uh, 
When you would sit down, what was your daily writing routine like? Well, my, did you write every day? Did you write in the mornings? Did you have, I'm going to try to knock out a couple thousand words for five days a week and just plug along? Yeah, well, what was your I run my own business, that? so I have I do video production, which is another you know offshoot of the film world that I live in, which is a whole other story. But so sometimes I have clients, I have to go out and do shoots or I have to edit something. Um, but my wife works and my son goes to school, and I found that the best time to write was when they weren't home. <laughs> and so there were a lot of days yes. where um, I, I woke up and she took him to work. She, he worked, he goes to school right near where she works, so they would leave together. I'd sit down, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. So, okay, I have till three before, you know, the YouTube goes on the TV when my son comes home and my wife's in the kitchen. And I didn't even want to be in my home office because I spent so much time in there doing other stuff. So I would find a nice, comfortable place in my house and sit there and just go till, you know, again, without even taking a morning shower till lunchtime, you know, just write and try to get as much done in three. And then at three o'clock, I'd put it away and pick it up again the next day. Um, so that was really the process. And just until it got done and I thought it'd be done in four months and it took uh, took what from June to April, June 2018 to no, wait, June 2019 to April 2020. I finished in April. So wow. that's a bunch of months. And then I spent four or five months fixing it and editing it and all that stuff. So it was a, it's coming up on a year and a half process to get this thing self-published. Did you have anybody like um, some alpha or beta readers that would read your manuscript and like give you feedback along the Not way? Not as I was writing it. When I finished it, I had a few people yes. read it. Um, got some good feedback. Uh, I've also learned as I get older, and you probably know this as well, that feedback is, you know, very valuable. You don't, you don't have to very. take everybody's advice, but you should at least listen to it and process it. And then you'll know whether it can be discarded or whether it's something you should seriously consider. And, um, you know, I gave it to some colleagues, people I trust and got some feedback. And then the best thing I did was I actually spent money on uh, a professional person who does manuscript assessments. Uh, founder online mm -hmm. after some research she used to work uh, in a publishing house and knows marketability and you know one of these visceral readers so i paid her a decent sum of money and she read it and gave me a four-page uh document with feedback and it was exceptional and it was right on i mean i showed it to one of my beta readers and here's what she said he was like man she nailed it and i checked off all yeah. those boxes in a rewrite and fixed some things with the characters and and the results um is I think terrific. I'm thrilled with the way the book came out. And um, it, so the name of your, your new book is just mm -hmm. a typo. Let's you want to give us a yeah, tease uh, about this without giving too much spoiler alerts or anything. Yeah. Just it, it's an interesting uh, well, it's, concept. it's about cancel culture. It's my personal take on, on cancel culture and a society where most of us here in America, uh, including myself, maybe to a degree, we're oversensitive. Uh, someone says something and we find a way to be offended by it. Uh, things that are harmless uh, will twist into something that, that hurts our feelings. And you see people on TV all the time and, and even things on in your Correct. past. I mean, there was, a, I forget the Senator who they found a yearbook photo from 30 years ago and he was in a Halloween costume in blackface. And you could say that's inappropriate right. and it probably is, but you know, the guy was in college and we've all been to college and you don't think about who you're hurting, whose feelings you're hurting. And, this guy, you know, now all of a sudden he's all over the news and he's being, he's trending right. on Twitter because 30 years ago he, he painted his face black for a cost. Yeah. When he was 20 years old and, you know, drinking beer exactly. at a party, it, it's, it's a really hard thing to, you know, sort through and unpack at times. And, you know, personally, I've, 
I've looked at some things and go, yeah, that, that needed to happen. And others like, eh, I don't really know. So, I mean, it's, it's a sliding scale, I think, and everybody's scale is a little bit different. But your guy in your story, yeah. tell his – okay, his name is yeah, Mo Riverlake. His stage name correct? is Mo Riverlake. And the thing that I wanted to communicate so, about it was that um, you can be canceled and you can be looked at as a bad guy for the most innocent of reasons. Now, not to say that the blackface situation I just described was an innocent thing. That's just an example of how we – find things in people's past and then all of a sudden we judge we judge them based on that and now that on today's right, that standards from many guys yes. racist because of what he did when he was drunk at 20 years old but my character is a celebrity he's a game show host and he basically sends out a tweet to support something in the lgbtq community and he has a typo he misses one letter uh, and i'm not gonna tell you what the letter is you gotta read the book but if you you know i think you know what it is bill i think you saw it I so do. he wants to be completely honest and, and uh, be very supportive, which uh, which was what the tweet was going to be until his finger missed the letter. Uh, and he sent out something that turned out to be incredibly offensive. And so as soon as that tweet goes out, of course, he's the new blackface guy and he's riled by the press and everybody's retweeting him and calling him a jerk and an a-hole and all those other things. And, and then right. people come out of the woodwork from his past and say, Hey, you know what? 20 years ago, he said this to me on an airline flight and all of these things that were completely innocent and harmless. Um, he's, he's the best guy. I mean, he, he does charity work. He visits people in the hospital. I mean, he's nothing he's ever done has been offensive, but all of a sudden everything in his past is twisted into something that makes him, basically the most loathsome creature on the planet everybody hates him <laughs> well it's social media yeah. is forever and you know i've talked to my children i'm sure you have too it's like there are things you just can't you can't tiptoe around you can't put on there even if you delete it it doesn't go away forever the internet lasts forever and it, it has shown itself to be true and your guy like you said, an innocent mistake, and it just was the beginning of a, of a long spiral yeah. down for him. I, uh, we, we talked when we prepped for this that Mo Riverlake has his own Twitter handle, which I thought was brilliant. So as you're promoting your book, which you said I think is going to come out end of January, yeah, beginning of February. February is that right? as of this conversation. I'm not sure when this will air, but it should be the first week of February. So we'll try to coincide that. And on this Twitter handle, you have a Mo River Lake, a, a character in your book. I wish I would have done this when I wrote, wrote my last book. I probably will copy it on my next one. And I think it's brilliant. So you have a fictional character with his own social media account and he could, and I'm not sure how you're planning to use the, the Twitter account for Mo River Lake, but to me, it's like a perfect way to kind of, parallel what he might say on social media to the things that are happening to him in the book as somebody might, you know, be reading it along the way or whatever. What, what are your plans for that? Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of idea. fun so far. It's only been a week, I think, to the day here so that we're recording this. And I don't have a whole lot of followers yet. I've got a couple and uh, they're trickling in, but I'm trying, you know, use all social media strategy to get people to notice them. I'm retweeting and I'm commenting, but I'm having a blast. It's, it's a heck of a lot easier. I told you this in our prep call. It's easier to tweet as him than it is to tweet as me <laughs> because uh, yes, you know, I know, his, sense. I, I, I know who he is. I I've written his entire story and um, you know, I know his sensibilities and so I can just go on there and he can make these sarcastic, humorous comments about his situation and relate them to anything that's going on. 
And so he's tweeting two, three times a day and commenting on things. And I'm laughing. I mean, I'm sitting here laughing about it. And um, the plan for him is just to, um, or right now it's really to attract people um, because the bio mentions that he's a former game show host who got canceled because of a typo in a tweet and his novel is coming out. So hopefully people say, wow, I want to learn more about this guy and what's going on. So it's kind of a marketing thing for the moment. I guess it always will be, but it's also just fun to be able to, uh, it's it's another creative outlet just to go places and say something with nothing offensive or nothing, you know, dirty or like, but just to be another person and go out there and make a snide comment or, make a self-deprecating comment about yourself as this character uh, and put it out there on Twitter. And hopefully people will laugh about it. And, you know, I think more people who read the book might follow him and, and his exploits. And, um, you know, there's a whole avenue of stories he can tell and, um, you know, live tweeting about an event, even if I make it up. I mean, there's so much, it's, 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 it's just another creative outlet, which in turn could help bring people to the book. So it's like a win-win. So if, if uh, anyone listening today wants to get up to date on, on your book and what's happening in it, what, where, what are the social media accounts, Facebook, whatever, yeah, that they so can the, find you? The character Mo Riverlake is at Mo Riverlake, and there's no spaces. So it's M-O, Mo Riverlake, exactly the way you would expect it, Riverlake, one word. Uh, I'm Jay Bernardo, J-B-E-N-N-A-R-D-O-222, and that's my personal Twitter handle. Um, the book, when it launches, it's not right now, but it will be on Amazon. You could search just a typo or even my name, John Bernardo, B-E-N-N-A-R-D-O. Um, I have an author uh, page on Facebook, and that's John Bernardo Author, all one word, no spaces. Um, I think that's pretty much I mean, the YouTube channel we could talk about with the $2 bill documentary. You could literally search the $2 bill documentary and spell out the number two. And you should find those or just type dollar sign two into the search and my videos will probably show up. So there's also a place to find me. Well, I, um, I, I, I looked at your author page recently and it led me to your web page where you have right, some have a blog posts. Too. I forgot about that. Are, <laughs> yes. And it's great. And so we have something in common. I realized from um, one of your blog posts and that is, we both are a fan of the shower oh, yeah. squeegee. <laughs> so you and I both, when we're done with our business, we squeegee, I squeegee the glass, I squeegee the, <laughs> the, the, the tile, anything on the floor. And my wife, and, and she's the one that bought the squeegee. So I lived a certain amount of my life with no squeegeeing. Now I'm a squeegeeer. And I noticed that sometimes she will not squeegee. And I'm going, well, why is there a squeegee in here? You bought the squeegee. I'm the only one squeegeeing now. And so I do do my due diligence, squeegee my shower. I don't like what it looks like when I don't squeegee now. So I'm a convert for 50 whatever years. I, yeah. I non-squeegeed. Now I'm a squeegeer. And yeah, I feel and, pretty uh, good and you're about probably like OCD about like you don't want to leave any bead of water on there and I'll keep going back. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you saw that and found that, you know, I don't blog much. And the reason I don't blog much is because I was writing the book. I would love to put a you know daily or weekly. So anybody who sure. goes to my website, which is johnbernardo.com, uh, there's only four blogs there at the moment. I've got one I'm going to write here, I think, this week. It's on my agenda. I've got a good Actually, you know, I could tell you what it's going to be because my my character in my book is a game show host, and you may you don't know this, but I've been on two game shows. I was on I was on Scrabble no with Chuck Woolery in the early night. The plunge, remember you hit oh, the plunger wow. with the letters, and I was on a 
for four Vaguely. days. I was a four day, three day champion. I was on there for four days. Is there any well, footage good, of that on YouTube? The whole point is my blog, uh, and I was also on Wheel of Fortune. They only let you on one day, but I was the champion on Wheel of Fortune. I lost a bonus game, so I was going to do uh, two blogs, one, just about my experience going on these shows. And in the blog, put a bunch of pictures, and then put a link to some clips on YouTube. Um, you know, all about self promotion and entertaining people. I think it'd be an interesting. So those are going sure. up next. But uh, but the point about the blogs was that I I was writing the book, so I don't blog often. But back to the shower one. You know, I, I knew that had to, to be a blog. The minute I started a blog and took a shower that day, I was like, I got a blog about this. And so um, I'm sure you read it and appreciate it. And then the photo that I took there, that's actually a selfie, uh, which uh, yeah, oh, wow. one hand was easy. holding the phone up through the shower door and the other one, yeah. Great yes, picture. It was. <laughs> um, so I highly encourage you guys to read that, if not for any other reason than for the picture itself. But I'm glad I'm not the only one squeegeeing my shower. Let's put it that way. Yes. Well, hey, it's been great talking to you today, and I appreciate you coming on the show, and good luck with the book, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, I do have a copy. I have not gotten to it yet because I've been busy with the holidays, but it is on my pile of things to read, so thank you for that, and thank you again for taking the time yeah, to Yeah, I want to thank you for having me. me. It was just a fortuitous uh, meeting at the Thin Line Festival. Uh, we ran into each other, and you'll recall it was just a, we hit it off from the start. We started speaking about the $2 bill, and we've had a friendship since, albeit you know virtual you know through Facebook, but really glad to have met you and really uh, grateful for the opportunity to be on your show today. Well, same here, and thank you very much, and we will okay, see thanks, you Bill. next Good time. Good luck in 2021. Okay, take care. Same. Goodbye. Another episode is in the books. Thanks for tuning in to I'm Not Mad, I'm Just Irritated. I'm your host, Bill Flanagan. I'd like to thank our guest today, John. I'd like to thank our underwriters, Allison, my biggest fan. Isn't she sweet? My buddy Johnny, super groovy. My buddy Paul, also groovy. My buddy Matt, double groovy. That's not a knock on y'all just because he's double groovy. He just has that double groove going. And sometimes you might have it going. You never know. Guys, all guests appearing on I'm Not Mad, I'm Just Irritating, expressing their views and not necessarily those of its host. Maybe they are, maybe they don't. Who knows? Guys, have a great week. We will see you next time. Enjoy the soothing outro music. Y'all take care. I'm not mad